Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here across Alberta. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. In Calgary, 403-974-8255. Later in this hour, we're going to hear from the Pathways Alliance. Mark Cameron, their vice president, an organization that represents most of the major players in the oil and gas industry and an alliance that is devoted to reducing emissions, getting to net zero, looking to be a part of the solution. Uh, but they got some big concerns about the uh, emissions targets that the Liberals are talking about right now. Now, there's a discussion paper that was re- released this week, had a couple of different routes to getting to those targets. But either way, they see some some problems with that. We'll hear from them coming up after 2.30. Like I said, we'll have some time for your phone calls. Off the top in this hour, though, I want to explore the fallout from a very consequential decision last week by the federal government regarding the situation in, in Ukraine, regarding the United Front against Russia. And look, you know, from the get-go, in in fairness to to Canada, it seemed as though we had been leading the charge in imposing sanctions on Russia, trying to convince other countries to be a part of those sanctions. From we understand, Finance Minister, Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland, you know, was a big part of that early on. And frankly, given our, our limited ability to contribute in other ways... You know, this was uh, the most obvious road for Canada to go, in, in that it's somewhat symbolic. You know, we're going to impose these sanctions. We're going to try to encourage other countries to do so as well. So to see Canada make a decision that in a lot of ways undermines those sanctions was really disappointing. Now, you got a whole convoluted situation where a Russian natural gas pipeline to Germany needs to have its parts repaired in Canada. But that's the reality in this situation. So there's up to six gas turbines for the Nord Stream 1 pipeline uh, that are affected here. But the decision last week to send one of those uh, back to Russia was met with frustration and, frankly, anger uh, in Ukraine and from Ukraine's president. So the damage has been done here. The government has defended this decision. They say, you know, it's about standing with their allies. And clearly Germany was worried about, uh, you know, the impact of, of Canada withholding this, this turbine. So did we miss the boat here? And how did it get to this point? Well, a really interesting piece on all of this up at the line, theline.substack.com. Now, what this tells us and tells the world, uh, but just how serious Canada is, that maybe that was Ukraine's mistake, thinking that we're a serious country. Andrew Potter, the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, the author of this piece, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Andrew, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program. Thanks. Good, good to talk to you. Well, it's been about a week or so since the decision. Obviously, the government has, has scrambled to defend this. They faced all kinds of criticism. What have you made of, of both the government's defense and, and some of the criticism? Uh, so, uh, so I think um, a lot of the – so there's two issues, right? There's one is the decision itself, and the other is how they actually went about it, right? How they went about making the decision and communicating it. And a lot of my pieces is aimed at – criticizing the federal government for actually, uh, you know, whether or not they had a defensible position, um, they went about it in a, in a very sort of shame-faced and sort of uh, mumble-faced, mumble-mouthed way to the point where it's not even clear they told Zelensky ahead of time it was going to happen, right, which is, I think was part of why he was so angry and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that is to make a decision like this, own it, right? Stand up, say this is why you're doing it, and so on, which they, which they manifestly did not do, right? Typical to but there's the other issue, which is that um, a lot of people were warning the federal government ahead of time that, uh, that the turbine was not necessary for the operation of the pipeline, that it was largely a pretext by Russia to, uh, to put pressure on the West to, to engage in blackmail, and that Germany was going along with it um, because Germany is very concerned about um, sort of continuing to have good relations with Russia. That was a little warning of a lot of people, right? And all of that has come to pass. Um, there's a piece, uh, I know you guys probably haven't seen it, right? But uh, it was just posted on Reuters this afternoon. The, the, the turbine was actually returned uh, on the 17th to Germany. It was flown back to Cologne, Germany. Russia hasn't, hasn't uh, taken it back yet. They haven't filed any of the documentation to take it back. And uh, the, the Russian foreign minister today said uh, that, uh, or sorry, the economy minister said, I get the impression that Russia doesn't even want it back, Right. And so, so it's, it's completely clear now that by a Russian-German alliance, and that now they're trying to cover up for it. It's absolutely disgraceful. 
how could we have handled this differently, do you think? Um, well, we could have uh, done a, a number of things, right? One of which is to uh, um, be more upfront with, um, with, with Ukraine and our allies about what's going on and, and made a firm decision and said, look, Ukraine, we're going to do this because we have to because the Germans have to be kept on the side, right? The other possibility is to say to the Germans, you know what? Um, yes, you're in NATO. Yes, it's your, your uh, turbine, but we've got these sanctions. You guys are going to have to take a bit of pain, right? You made a bunch of decisions about, uh, about your economic insecurity that you're going to have to pay for, right? There's a lot of ways you could have done it. Canada did the worst of both worlds. They both, they both sneaked out uh, on, on the communication side of it and made the wrong decision, right? Like, neither one of them was the right way of handling it. What does this tell us then, and, and it kind of gets to the crux of your piece here, that when it comes to you know, these, these matters of, of global importance, when it comes to standing on principle, when it comes to having to take a stand, even a difficult stand, that maybe Canada's not a reliable country or even a predictable country in a good way, what does this tell the world, what does this tell our allies about us? What Canada has, has always tried to do for a very long time now, and this goes back to back to our original intervention in Afghanistan, Canada has this idea that um, their, their, their um, role or their, their ambition in foreign uh, policy is to do what um, some people call early in, early out. That is, get involved in something early, make a show of being involved and committed and so on, and then get out, having sort of like done the bare minimum, right? And, and I think uh, th- this, was, this was the case, uh, well, it was intended to be the case in Afghanistan, we got dragged into it. Um, but it's pretty clear that that's what's, what's going on here, is that Canada, you know, was a bit slow off the market at the beginning of the war, kind of came out after probably Christian Freeland probably sort of kicked some, kicked some shins under the table. Um, but definitely, as you can get a sense of that Canada feels it's sort of done what it had to do, right? And that now, you know, we, that everyone can move on. That Justin Trudeau visited, we opened our embassy, we gave him a few howitzers, we gave him some money, okay. So that's the problem here, is that Canada has no sense of commitment. We just simply don't commit to things. We we, we do what we need to, uh, what the absolute bare minimum to keep on side, and then we move on. It's 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 a congenital problem this country has, and it's it's the liberals in this case, but I think it's bipartisan. Yeah, it's interesting too to watch. I mean, it seems like Germany and, and even to some extent the United States has tried to give us some political cover after the initial expression of anger and frustration. It's almost like Ukraine's trying to be diplomatic. So maybe Canadians could try to convince themselves. We just try to pretend like this was no big deal, no lasting fallout here. But would it be naive to think that there wasn't some real damage done here to our international reputation? Uh, I, I think there absolutely is. I mean, uh, uh, certainly our international reputation w- within Ukraine, but also, you know, there's a million and a half Ukrainians in Canada, right? Like, um, this is not, not going to go away. I think um, the, the big problem with, uh, with what Canada did is Canada's part of the sanctions regime, and then we turned around and said, well, you know, it's a bit uncomfortable for us to, like, uh, sustain these sanctions, so we're going to fudge on them. So now everybody, when every other country does this, what standing does Canada have to... Uh, Everyone now has a license to fudge on their own sanctions regime when they need it, when it's politically uh, problematic. That's the big problem. <laughs> as I see it. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it seems as though, you know, that, that we were really forging a, a close relationship with, with Ukraine. And obviously, look, and Christia Freeland has, has her own connections, and I think she was a big part of that. But uh, this isn't going to be forgotten anytime soon, is it? No, it's not. Um, Certainly not by the Ukrainians. I mean, I opened the piece with a line about how uh, there's uh, there's not going to be a Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, alley in, in, in yeah. Kiev anytime soon. Uh, and that's a reference to the fact that Boris Johnson has a street named after him at a, uh, after town in Ukraine. Because Boris Johnson, whatever problems he's had domestically, and he's had oodles of them, right? Um, from the very start, he has been, uh, I hate to say it, but he's been positively Churchillian in his approach, right, to Ukraine. I mean, he visited twice. He was one of the, I, I believe he was the first European leader, you know, when Kiev was still under attack to go there and walk the streets in broad daylight with, with Zelensky. Uh, and and his, his last move uh, as prime minister, one quarter of uh, British uh, artillery arsenal to, to Ukraine today, right? Like, that's how you do these things. I uh, can't have any capacity to do that. Why, you know, you can guess, I mean, some people have speculated, Coley Koch speculated in, in the, the National Post that there was a domestic political aspect to it. The, the Siemens turbine uh, repair shop is in Montreal, while, yeah. you know, 
Ukrainians are mostly scattered across the West. You know better than most what the voting patterns in this country are, mm -hmm. right? Um, is it as crude and as crass as that? That makes me ill to think about that. That's a possibility. Look, on the other hand, how much of this is unique to this government? And how, how much of this is a, a much deeper problem when it comes to, to Canada and how we view uh, you know, foreign relations, foreign policy, our, our alliances? Maybe this is bigger than just this government. What, what's your sense on that side? Yeah, I do think it is bigger than, than this government. I think a lot of it is uh, this, um, this country. Look, Canada uh, has three oceans and the United States of America on four sides. Right. Um, we, d we don't have any serious foreign policy problem if we only have friendships and alliances. And as a result, most of what we do on the foreign policy front is aimed at um, managing the American alliance and managing relationships within NATO. And that's entirely what this turbine decision was about. But the problem is, is that we have this national security imaginary we, we, where we, we, we pretend that what Canada does is project values and principles abroad, right? And uh, what we do, though, is actually pretend to project those values and principles abroad, um, but engage in extremely uh, cynical uh, relationship management uh, at the ally level. And that's, that, that's, that's a, a, a cross-partisan um, problem. Yeah, indeed. We'll leave it there, Andrew. As mentioned, your piece is up at The Line, theline.substack.com. Great having you with us here, Andrew. Thanks so much for this. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. You as well. Take care. Uh, Andrew Potter, um, he's uh, associate professor of the Max Bell School of Public Policy, McGill University, also author of the recent book, On Decline, Stagnation, Nostalgia, and Why Every Year is the Worst One Ever. His piece, uh, it's up at The Line, as mentioned, Zelensky's mistake was believing Canada was serious. And so not pulling any punches here. He says Canada doesn't do moral clarity anymore, whether it's our business dealings with China, arms sales to Saudi Arabia, or sending a diplomat to a garden party of the Russian embassy. We are always and everywhere hedging our bets, fudging our principles, and letting down our allies. It was never going to be any different with Ukraine. We were always going to let them down eventually. If there's any consolation, the Ukrainians shouldn't take it personally. Maybe that's just how we do things. So uh, harsh but fair, I think, unfortunately. Welcome back. Well, it might seem odd to be relieved by a whopping 8.1% rate of inflation. But uh, the June Consumer Price Index increase was expected to be higher than what we saw today. So, yes, 8.1% was the year-over-year -year increase in the Consumer Price Index for the month of June. But economists had feared an even bigger number. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're having some success in reining in inflation. We're still at levels, you know, not seen in 40 years. Uh, the biggest driver of that increase last month was uh, fuel, gasoline, basically, representing uh, just over half of that increase. Prices for passenger vehicles were up 8.2%, the second biggest driver of inflation. So you do wonder if we might be seeing some movement. There's some optimism that... The automakers are recovering, getting some of their issues sorted out. We might see car prices come down. Uh, we've seen a bit of a decline in oil prices recently, so maybe that uh, affects things on the fuel side. But, um, that, you know, it's not enough just to hope for uh, circumstances to improve. And obviously, central banks have a mandate when it comes to inflation. And so far, we've seen the Bank of Canada is willing to be aggressive when it comes to trying to tame this. So are we having success? What do we uh, anticipate to be the situation in the months ahead? Joining us uh, for some further assessment of where things stand, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Douglas Porter, who is Chief Economist and Managing Director with BMO Financial Group. Mr. Porter, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Good afternoon, Rob. Uh, I mentioned there was some expectation that the, the number might have been a little bit higher than 8.1. First of all, what, what did you make of uh, what it came in at? Yeah, for a change, I was uh, actually somewhat pleasantly surprised by this number. Of course, you know, big picture, as as you mentioned at the at the outset, this is still the highest inflation rate we've seen in almost forty years. So it's not, it's not good news, um, but it's not as awful as uh, as some of us were were anticipating. And you know, there there were a couple little flickers of uh, of optimism I'd, I'd point to. Um, you know. Really, what drove the the inflation rate in the month were all mostly the usual suspects: uh, oil prices, car prices. You know, the, uh, hotel motel rates have really surged in the past year, but a lot of these things were expected. 
I guess the good news is there were there were no really nasty surprises here on on the high side, and we've been just hit by a string of nasty surprises for pretty much the past year. So to have a month where there was there was nothing really shocking is 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 I guess I'll take it as, as good news. Yeah. Does that mean inflation has peaked, or is it is it too soon to say so? Do you think? I I definitely think it's too soon to say. Yeah. Um, First of all, I do think the the headline number is going to come down next month, and I think there's going to be a you know a little bit of quote excitement about that. Uh, we you know we know that gas prices are likely to drop by about nine percent uh, th- this month, um, and and uh, they actually rose a lot a year ago. Uh, so we are likely to get a little bit of relief for a month, but unless oil prices and some uh, some grain prices fall in a durable manner, uh, we think we're probably looking at headline inflation pretty close to eight percent. Uh, through this, the remainder of, of this year. Um, and then we think it starts to back off in 2023. Um, but I think we're, we're due for uncomfortably high inflation for a while. Now, having said that, keep, keep in mind that inflation's been on pretty much a one-way trip north uh, for, for almost the last year and a half consistently. So to even have a topping out at least is a step in the right direction. You, you know, so I think it, it, it at least has stopped uh, rising uh, but for it to actually start to come down, we we need some help from things like oil prices and the, the global supply chain uh, to to really durably get us uh, coming back down again. Right. So at the same time, would it be too soon to to start assessing the impact of, of higher interest rates? Because you know people have seen that. Look, the Bank of Canada is taking some steps to try to address inflation. Inflation isn't coming down, but what what does that tell us, if anything, about the effectiveness of the bank's approach? So historically, the old rule of thumb is it takes uh, anywhere from 12 to 24 months for interest rate changes to, to fully work their way through the economy and to fully have an effect on inflation. So my short answer would be it's way too early yeah. uh, to be looking for uh, for any impact from uh, from higher rates. And, you know, keep in mind, this uh, report was for the month of June and the, uh, the Bank of Canada, you know, did that last 100 basis point hike uh, just at the start of July. So it's, uh, you know, that, that, that one has, hasn't had any effect. Um, at least on, on these headline inflation numbers. Having, having said that, the, the one interesting feature here is we actually did see some uh, housing-related uh, measures start, start to back off a little bit. And, and uh, you know, that, that of course, is, is related to the cool-down in, in, in the housing market more broadly. And that, of course, in turn, is, uh, is related to the Bank of Canada's interest rate increases. Uh, so you can actually make a case that uh, there, there are some signs, at least at the, at the older edges, that, uh, that the interest rate hikes are, are actually starting to have a little bit of an effect. But, but it's, it's very early days. Well, and, and there's a sense that it could have some more immediate effect, at least in two sectors. Already there, there seems to be a sense that it's having an impact on, on housing, which has been a big uh, force in, in inflation. And, and vehicle sales, you know, there's some concern that higher interest rates will affect vehicle loans. That could have an impact on vehicle sales. Could we see in the short term some noticeable impact? in those two sectors? Well, you know, the auto market is a really weird one, uh, to use the technical term. <laughs> um, it, because of the chip shortage, you know, basically the automakers haven't been able to build the vehicles they want to build and the, the demand for them that's out there. And I, I, I believe there is a, just a ton of pent-up demand uh, for, uh, for vehicles. Um, it, it's, it's true uh, that the tougher financing will, will probably knock out some of those on, on the sidelines that have been waiting uh, to get back in the market. And so, you know, the sales demand might not be quite as high as it would have otherwise been. But I, I still think there's uh, there are a lot of folks out there who have been trying to get a vehicle for the last year and a half who haven't been able to. And uh, I, I think there's still quite a bit of strength in the, in the pipeline on, on the vehicle side. Um, it's, it's interesting. In, uh, in the latest month, uh, we, we didn't get much relief in auto prices. They, they still kept rising, and they're, uh, they were actually one of the bigger contributors to the monthly gain. And they're they're now up by eight and a half percent. We we haven't seen that kind of increase since the eighties. Uh, so vehicle prices are are still a thorn in the side here. They're they're still adding to inflation, not uh, not helping us out yet. And then there's the recession concerns, and the bigger concern that inflation might not be tamed by a recession. We might end up with the worst of both worlds. I mean, a how concerned are you about a recession, and and b what's your sense of you know the impact that could have on inflation. It's it's definitely a, a huge concern, and and frankly, I think the the recession risks really do hinge on on the inflation outlook. So, in other words, you know, do we get uh, 
uh, some relief from commodity prices and some relief from the global supply chains. If we do, then inflation will back off a bit on on its own. And that means the central banks won't have to raise interest rates as much and recession risks would uh, would uh, would come down. But as things stand right now, I'd, I'd say the recession risks are almost 50-50. Uh, for North America over over the next year, it's you know just one. We're we're basically one shock or one unlucky step away, I think, from uh, from this turning into an outright downturn. Now the the second and more interesting part of your question, or well, equally interesting part, is uh, you know will will that be enough uh, to cool inflation? And you know again that that depends on some factors out of, out of the hands of central banks. You know things like uh, like commodity uh, prices. Um, I, I, to me, it's it's not obvious that that a mild or short-lived downturn is going to be enough. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of focus on food and energy prices, but if you look at so-called core inflation, in other words, everything outside of food and energy, mm-hmm. uh, that core inflation is running at about close to five percent. That's that's well above anything we've seen for for quite some time, and that that might be a tougher nut to crack uh, than than headline inflation over the next year, and might might actually take an outright downturn to start bringing that down. Yeah, so it's it's quite a needle the Bank of Canada is trying to thread here, and obviously focusing on on inflation and its mandate there, but recognizing you know some of these economic concerns. What, what does that suggest about the the next move from the bank? What are we anticipating in September? Do you think? Well, they they do get uh, there, first of all, there's a whole lot a uh, lot more numbers to to go, and we get another inflation report before they have to make that decision. Um, but at this point, we're uh, we're expecting a half a point increase in uh, in September. Uh, in the financial market, sort of the debate right now is whether they go by a half or three quarter percent. And I think maybe that's the major message, is that the bank, uh, you know, certainly isn't done yet. And by the end of the year, our our view is that they're likely to raise their uh, their overnight rate, which right now is two and a half percent, by another full percentage point in total. Uh, we don't think that comes in one fell swoop. We think that'll be uh, spread out over the uh, the three remaining meetings in the year. Um, and at this point, we think that's probably where they stop and take a pause and, and see whether that's enough uh, to, to start bringing down inflation in, in a meaningful fashion. And, you know, again, the reality is a lot of the inflation fight is, is out of the hands of, uh, of wheat here in Canada. Um, you know, a lot of it is driven by global factors, things like oil prices, things like the global supply chain. But you know, we have to do what we can do. Uh, we, you know, we don't want to be on the bad side of average when it comes to uh, to global inflation. So we really have to get our own house in order and make sure that uh, that you know our inflation performance isn't worse than than others. And so far, it, it actually has been a little bit better than others. Um, you know, Canada's inflation rate is below that in Europe or the UK or, or the US, not by a lot, but we are a little bit lower than some of those other economies. So that's, I guess that's the good news. Yeah. Well, we'll take whatever we can get, I guess. Uh, much more at BMO.com. Douglas Porter, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All the best. Douglas Porter, Chief Economist, Managing Director, BMO Financial Group. His sense of, um, you know, what these numbers represent and, you know, what we can expect in terms of inflation and the bank's response uh, in the months ahead. This is not a stunt. I am dead serious. Healthcare is in crisis. It is way worse than it was when I first ran for public office. Well, I tell you what, two things can be true. Healthcare can be in crisis and Ross Sherman can indeed be engaging in a bit of a stunt here. Uh, he's one of the uh, candidates trying to get official approval to run for the UCP leadership. Today is the deadline uh, for candidates to submit uh, the necessary uh, money and the necessary signatures. And at, at last count, three candidates had done so and been approved. Travis Taze, Daniel Smith, and Brian Jean. Four others say they've submitted everything necessary, just waiting for official word. Raj Sherman is one of the would-be candidates, John Horseman the other, who were struggling at the last minute to gather the necessary signatures. And it'll be interesting to see if he does manage to get a thousand signatures, if the party would approve him to run. Because that does raise a question, I guess, what is the UCP? Ross Sherman was once a PCMLA. The PC party was part of what became uh, the UCP. But at the same time, it does feel like a bit of a stunt. Uh, Ross Sherman aside, obviously, this is a competition to be Alberta's next premier. And it feels like, you know, we're, we're starting to see a race shaping up here. There's some, I think, maybe front runners starting to emerge, if that's fair to say. Uh, we still got a couple of months to go, though. Early October is uh, when the UCP is going to crown its new leader and Alberta will get its next premier. 
Uh, so we'll continue to watch how this whole plays out this afternoon. Five o'clock is the deadline. Uh, for the candidates to get everything in. And I guess at some point later on today, we'll see uh, the official verdict from the party and uh, all of these uh, would-be candidates. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on where things stand, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dwayne Bratt, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. Dwayne, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Uh, so anything uh, surprising catch your eye so far today or kind of playing out almost as we expected? I am a bit surprised on how many candidates were able to uh, get their money in and their um, their signatures. So at the moment, there's seven. Uh, three have been formally accepted by the party. Gene, Taves, and, and Smith were waiting to hear about whether uh, Leela here, Rajan Sani, Rebecca Schultz, and Todd Lowen will be accepted. But if that is the case, and all seven have brought in their, their first installment and their 1,000 signatures, That'll be seven, and that's a lot more than I thought there would be. I yeah. thought when they set the threshold of $150,000, and you probably need half a million, 600000 to run an effective campaign, that we'd be down to four people or five people. So having seven is going to be quite uh, uh, quite a large number. Um, we're still waiting to see whether John Horseman gets in by 5 o'clock and, and Raj Sherman, who it is a stunt, and the party will not accept Raj Sherman. And I think he right. knows that. I would think so. It's been interesting. I mean, obviously, he's been able to raise some money still, despite all yeah, that. So. Whether that's his own yeah. money, <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> right. he, he has been able to raise that money. And uh, it will be entertaining, you know, if he continues to run sort of a shadow campaign to put health care issues on the agenda. You know, that would be a stunt, but a worthy stunt. But no, the, the party will not accept him. He's not a member of the party. Yeah. And uh, he was a former Alberta liberal leader who left the legacy PCs under very bad terms. Mm-hmm. By the way, you mentioned the money. I, I saw it next door in B.C. where they're kind of going through the same thing. Premiers are resigning. They're going through a leadership race with the B.C. NDP to crown a new premier. I think it's like $15,000, 15, right? Like a tenth. <laughs> that is. Yeah. And... Um, they, the, the ostensible reason is that they wanted to put it at 150 to, you know, shorten the field. Um, in BC, it looks like there may only be one person who wants the job and that's at 15,000. And now whether that's, you know, the social democratic party versus a conservative party, but it is remarkable that the difference there, uh, same thing with Manitoba, uh, the Manitoba, when they chose the, their PC, leader who became premier, it was about $50,000. Plus, this is double the amount that they had in, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a really high number. Well, there's obviously a lot of interest in being Alberta's next premier. There's pretty some pretty fertile fundraising ground out there amongst uh, conservatives, so that's all very interesting. My sense, and I was talking about it earlier, that we, we've got some front runners. It almost feels to me like, in, in some respects, you've kind of got Travis Taves, who maybe represents those who would still be supportive of Jason Kenney. Daniel Smith seems to be hoovering up a lot of that support amongst those who wanted Kenny gone. Feels like Brian Jean's campaign has been a little underwhelming, considering how long he was planning for this. Uh, and and then you've got kind of the rest of the field. But what, what's your sense of how that? This uh, I would I would agree with that that assessment. I think Travis Taves is trying to position himself as being, if you like the government's policies but don't like the personal baggage of Jason Kenney, I'm your guy. Um, as opposed to if you really hated the policies of Jason Kenney, particularly over COVID, and you want a more assertive policy towards Ottawa. Than, than Smith. Brian Jean, is, it's almost like they just expected once Kenny was gone that everybody would rally around Brian Jean. Yeah. And that hasn't been the case. And he is floundering. But I think there's wild card here. And the wild card is uh, what I call the, the three Calgary area women. Um, and I think one of those three, not all, but one of those may actually be able to, to do something here. Um, They both, all three have compelling narratives in in different respects. Uh, Rebecca Schultz can highlight the the child care deal, and not just the child care deal, but saying if you want to fight with Ottawa, that's fine. But if you actually want to get results with Ottawa, look at me. I got results. You know, uh, Rajan Sani 
says, you know, I was able to stand up to Kenny on, on a number of different items. Leela here is saying the same thing. So on a multiple ballot, watch one of those three. Well, that's the thing, right? And, and and we can look back, and obviously it was under a different party banner, but uh, the circumstances which led to Ed Stelmack becoming PC leader, that le- led to Allison Redford becoming, uh, you know, PC leader. Once you have those multiple ballots, things can get really interesting. Yeah, and the, the rules are different, right? Yeah, the, the rules in uh, both the Stelmack victory and the Redford victory, it was a two-stage process. So there was about seven or eight candidates, and then they narrowed it to three. And then they had a preferential ballot. This is seven candidates with a preferential ballot right off the bat. And you can't sell memberships right up until the vote. The membership sales close August 12th. Right. So it's going to be an interesting couple of months. And once those leadership uh, sales are cut off, then that's that's the field you're going after. And so we, we see how things are starting to shape up. We talked about Travis Taves and maybe what he represents. What do you make of, of Daniel Smith's campaign? Obviously, she's having a, a lot of success, I, I think, in, in you know reaching out to a certain constituency within the party. Uh, obviously, that would be... You know, quite a remarkable political comeback when you look at uh, what happened, you know, seven, eight years ago. But, you know, your thoughts on how that's all playing out? It is, uh, she is setting the agenda. Everybody is having to respond to the Smith campaign. She has got the most enthusiasm, but she's also the most polarizing. Uh, so the question is, in a preferential ballot, does she have anybody's second choice? And the people who are will put down Smith first, do they have a second choice? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's, it's a very unusual campaign. But I would agree, if she pulls this off, it will be a remarkable political comeback. Well, it, it is funny when you contrast, uh, you know, the, the Daniel Smith that, that stood along with with Jim Prentice and the politician she was trying to be at that time versus what she's become now. Uh, you know, the people who hated her then are the very people she's she's trying to appeal to now. That that to me is really interesting. It is interesting, and you wonder the impact of COVID here. Yeah, um, you know that is. I saw a bit of a radicalization of Daniel Smith over COVID, and that's what she's appealing to. And so the people who may have been really hated her for the floor crossing, I think have switched because of COVID. It's been also interesting to watch uh, the NDP and how they've, you know, approached the, the leadership race. And, and they do from time to time, you know, criticize, yeah. a, you know, this candidate or that candidate, but... You know, it's it's been rather tepid so far. I don't know if they're necessarily hoping that so-and-so wins or so-and-so doesn't win. Um, but obviously, you know, this this is going to have a huge impact on how the election next year plays out. What's your sense of how they're viewing all of this, what they might be hoping for here? It's hard to say. I mean, we just wrapped up Stampede, and I think they must have rented a bus down from Edmonton because the Edmonton caucus staffers... Uh, you know, uh, Rachel Notley, they were everywhere. Yeah. And I do know they've, they've got radio ads coming out. So, you know, they, they've realized that Calgary is the battleground. They probably spent more time in Calgary when they were in opposition than when they were in government. Well, interesting, but it's tough yeah. to organize a critique when you don't know who the leader is. And each of them is so different. That's for sure. We'll see how it all plays out. Five o'clock today is the deadline, so we'll know after today what the official field looks like and uh, plenty to discuss over the next couple of months. Dwayne, appreciate your input here. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Okay, you're welcome, Rob. Cheers. Uh, Dwayne Bratt, professor of political science at Mount Royal University. His thoughts on how this race is shaping up and uh, what lies ahead over the next couple of months. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Rickenrich with you here this Thursday afternoon. We'll talk a bit more about gasoline prices uh, coming up later in the hour. Also, later on, we'll hear from the Pathways Alliance. We'll find out a bit more about how the uh, big players in the oil and gas sector are willing to be a part of the solution when it comes to emissions reductions. But uh, some concerns over the government's aggressive targets and how they're going about it. So we'll get to that coming up later on this afternoon.
Uh, but obviously, the center of all of this is, uh, you know, the question of um, the commodity itself. You know, what's going on with the price of oil? What's being done to to meet the demand? What are we seeing in terms of supply? It's been a bit of a roller coaster in recent weeks when it comes to the price of oil, which has bounced above and below a hundred dollars a barrel. Uh, on on WTI certainly in in recent weeks, so there's still the the demand that's high. There's concerns about inflation, which have been putting downward pressure. There's obviously individual circumstances going on uh, in various countries, both in terms of supply and demand. So a complicated picture. Uh, so we get the latest snapshot on, on all of it. The Global Oil Data Deck, as he refers to it, uh, commodity analyst Rory Johnston. And his latest up at commoditycontext.com. Rory Johnston is commodity analyst, founder of. Commodity Context Newsletter joins us on the line here this afternoon. Roy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me again, Rob. It feels like, you know, we're, we're starting the conversation. The price of oil is at one point. Maybe by the time we're done the conversation, it's going to be somewhere <laughs> else, right? It, it seems really volatile these days. Yeah, it's been extremely volatile. Now, the trend over the past month has definitely been negative. So about a month ago, we, you know, WTI was sitting up around 120 bucks. Now we're sitting down around... Uh, yeah, I think it's below 95 as, as we're currently talking. But as you, as you say, you know, we've been up and down kind of $5 here, $5 there. These are big moves in the market. And normally, I think for the past kind of three, four months since Russia invaded Ukraine, I think a lot of that volatility has been very justified because of a, a, a constant kind of reassessment of the fundamental picture, the supply, demand, barrels in, barrels out. That was very volatile, so it makes sense that the kind of the, the prices were volatile. This latest bout, however, since over this past month or so, has been associated with a really strong, really notable reduction in, in what I watched in terms of the speculative signal. So what we had seen was, you know, there wasn't excess speculation in the market keeping the prices high. It was still it was reasonably kind of moderate, even lowish. But as you were mentioning about these inflation fears, and obviously central banks focused on the price of oil, the price of the pump, uh, and kind of, you know, really veering towards some kind of global slowdown, if not a, a recession, you know, as people try to take risk off the table, a lot of them were doing it through oil. And, and you did see that position drop considerably over that period. So all of the indicators in the kind of shape of the forward curve are still kind of screaming bullish tight markets, but the overall price is down. So I think right now we're, we're dealing with a bit of a speculative sell-off. But I think that, you know, going forward, you know, the trajectory does seem upward. Well, in terms of the fundamentals, as as you note in in your analysis, we've seen both supply and demand uh, increase recently. So, you know, is is supply starting to catch up to demand or is there still an imbalance there? Yeah, so you're right. So in my latest uh, global oil data deck at commoditycontext.com, uh, we, we have seen kind of the second month now of reasonably oversupplied markets. This is in May when the latest data is available. But April and May were both reasonably oversupplied. The most oversupplied the market's been since the beginning of the pandemic with the big demand shock. But it was actually for a similar reason. And the majority of that fallback in global demand was because of the pullback in China because of these COVID zero related lockdowns. So to your point, you know, you know, supply is up a little bit, but it's reasonably flat. Whereas demand has really come down to meet supply. And uh, my expectation is kind of coming out of the summer, eventually these COVID zero lockdowns in China are going to end. Then we're going to be back in a situation where, you know, by the end of the summer, OPEC will have finished adding its barrels back to the market that it it had been withholding. And and you're also going to see kind of U.S. shale, you know, uh, know, that that continues to the point of focus. You know, are they going to go fast enough? And, And so far, we really haven't seen enough activity to warrant higher production yet. I think that's something people have been wondering about. If the price signal is there in, in terms of higher prices, yeah. what's what's holding producers back, whether they be, you know, U.S. shale, even here in Canada or, or another country? Yeah, so let's focus on U.S. shale for a second, because I think Canada is a little bit of a different picture. You know, the, the timelines are much, much longer. And I think that you will see growth in Canada, but it's going to take, you know, slightly high, you know, higher prices, for an even longer period of time than, than would theoretically be required for the U.S. So let's focus there. Um, in the U.S., what you've seen is after a decade prior to COVID of really, really terrible returns for investors from U.S. shale producers, you know, depending on the numbers you're looking at, you're looking at upwards of half a trillion dollars of, of kind of wasted investment in overproduction. Now, you know, the, you know, no one's growing. None of the major U.S. shale producers are growing. And it's mostly because of this idea that investors are pushing back on them and saying, 
don't invest, you know, finally get some of that cash flow that's been coming to us for a decade and kind of pay out what, what basically you owe. Um, and I think, you know, you had actually been seeing a little bit of that really happening and equity prices were rising and everything was going really well. And I thought we were reaching a point where shale was going to start accelerating its production again. But then ironically, when central banks really tightened their posture and kind of put, you know, you know, really put the foot on the on the interest rate accelerator, um, you know, trying to put trying to clamp down demand and, and, and inflation, you also triggered a bit triggered a bit of a financial market correction. And a lot of these production, a lot of these equities, a lot of these uh, stock prices, these oil producers are down 30, 40 percent, which has really reduced a lot of that incentive they had to actually grow again. Uh, back to China for a second. And obviously, you know, the, the severe lockdowns in China had, had a real impact in a lot of ways, obviously, in terms of supply chains, but also really had an impact on the demand side. So, I mean, you know, it's still an ongoing process, I think you alluded to in China coming out of that. But but where are things at right now? Yeah, so, you know, they're not as bad as they were, at least in terms of the oil oil numbers and the demand numbers. It does look like, like they hit the low point in April. And that was, again, that, you know, two, three months earlier, they had actually been at all-time record high levels of demand. And then in two, three months, it fell by 3 million barrels a day, which is a huge amount to fall off in that period of time, which is why it went from an exceptionally tight market and high prices to a looser market and kind of this lower price environment very, very quickly. Again, these, these numbers are moving very, very quickly. I, you know, what we're seeing in China right now is kind of a continued on again, off again kind of relationship. It seems like, you know, every time we get even a mild flare up of COVID cases in a major Chinese city, there's, you know, a massive lockdown of the surrounding area and huge kind of ramifications. As that, that doesn't seem sustainable, but it's been going on and kind of persisting longer than I and I think many others thought it would. So, you know, the best answer I have there is, is it doesn't seem like it can go on forever. So eventually right. we will come back out the other side of demand. But, you know, uh, you know, timing is, is a big question. All right. So going forward, then, you're, you, you still seem bullish on, on the price of oil uh, through the rest of this year. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's most of that. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the China question is a massive one. And if the world goes into a very acute economic downturn, you know, all bets are off. Oil is fundamentally a risk asset. Uh, and I, I that would have huge demand repercussions. But, you know, barring a massive economic recession, I, I see the combination of a mostly tapped out, out, mostly tapped out OPEC, kind of a, a chronically constrained Russia, and a very, very sluggish pace of growth, at least half the pace of growth uh, for any given price uh, level from U.S. shale producers. To me, that, you know, if, if not an outright massive bull market, that's a structurally higher price environment going forward than we had going into COVID, at least kind of 30 to $40 a barrel higher, I think. All right, really interesting. Much more is mentioned, commoditycontext.com. Rory, I always appreciate the insight uh, and the analysis. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks much, Rob. All the best. That's uh, Rory Johnston, founder of the Commodity Contact Newsletter. Uh, snapshot of where things are at with global oil prices, what's driving uh, supply and demand factors. So it's really interesting to see what's been going on in recent weeks with some of that volatility. And so there's some of the explanation for that. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. We'll have some more time for your phone calls before all is said and done. But I want to focus on the federal government's plans to try to reduce emissions significantly in the oil and gas industry. Now, this is a break from the previous policy, right? Because the whole idea of putting a price on carbon is to keep it simple. It's not industry specific. It's just the price is there. If certain businesses or industries or whatever uh, are, are higher in their emissions, then obviously they're going to pay a higher price. But the federal government is taking an industry-specific approach now when it comes to emissions in the oil and gas sector. So it's been Environment Minister Stephen Gilboa, whose department is spearheading this. A discussion paper released this week looks at a couple of different options of getting to these targets. But basically, the expectation is emissions not increased from current levels. And that what they're proposing by 2030 would be about a 42% reduction from 2019 emissions levels. So pretty aggressive target. A couple of ways in which they're, they're going to get there. So... Uh, this is seen as aggressive. This is seen as probably difficult to meet without some significant cost. Interestingly, with some context here, uh, as far as the government's prepared to go here, which I think to a lot of folks out here is is pretty far, it's not far enough. 
to some on the environmental fringes. If you missed it yesterday, this was the reception that Stephen Guilbeault got from a protester in Montreal. Un organisme communautaire pour les hommes gays et bisexuels de Montréal dans la circonscription de Laurier-Sainte-Marie. D'accord, ben, je, vais, je vais vous laisser, je vais vous laisser une minute. Comment tu justifies le baie du Nord? C'est important. Comment tu justifies le baie du Nord? C'est important. Parce qu'on a une annonce, on a une annonce importante. Vous avez pu faire votre, vous avez pu faire votre message par respect pour les gens qui sont ici. Par respect par les gens qui sont ici. Non. Oui, je suis d'accord avec vous. Je suis d'accord avec vous. On en a fait plus qu'aucun autre gouvernement sur cette question-là. Maintenant, pour respect pour les gens qui sont ici, pour les respect, pour le, par respect pour les Then I'll accept history's judgment. OK, very Montreal debate. Honestly, uh, you know, to hear <laughs> bilingual anger anyway. Uh, so to some of the environmental left, Stephen Gilbo is a climate criminal. He's too pro oil and gas, which is uh, quite the take. Anyway, back here in the real world, there are some real legitimate concerns about the impact that these these targets and reaching these targets are going to have. Uh, the Pathways Alliance, which represents most of the big players in the uh, oil and gas industry, uh, have some concerns. Now, certainly this alliance exists for the purpose of furthering progress on emissions reduction and getting to net zero, pathwaysalliance.ca. You can read more there. Joining us to talk about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Mark Cameron, who is vice president of the Pathways Alliance. Mark, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, well, first of all, talk a bit about the, the Pathways Alliance, how this has all come together, and obviously how this is about working toward, you know, seeing meaningful emissions reductions. Sure. Well, the Pathways Alliance is the sixth largest oil sands producers, representing about 95% of the production in uh, Alberta and Canada. That's CNRL, uh, Synovus, Suncor, uh, ConocoPhillips, Imperial, Meg. Uh, um, and, and so we've come together uh, and, and have a concrete plan to reduce emissions by 22 megatons by 2030 and to achieve net zero by 2050. And so there's there's a belief then that this is is doable, right? That you know we can reduce emissions without having to reduce production. But but where is is that line when, you know, maybe more aggressive targets do potentially mean having to scale back on production? Yeah, and that's really our concern here. Is you know we've looked at all of our potential projects, and we think we can realistically, if we get all the policy signals right, if we get the regulatory approvals, we can realistically reduce by 22 megatons by 2030. And that's somewhere in the order of 25 to 30% of our emissions. The federal government is talking about a 42% uh, reduction target for the oil and gas sector. So we don't think we can do that in the oil sand side and in the conventional side. You know, there's certainly room to do things with methane emissions reductions, but not that we achieve a 42% reduction. So if we're looking at the entire sector having to reduce by 42% and not taking into account any new production, for instance, LNG plants in BC, uh, that becomes a very uh, sharp constraint. Now, obviously, if we're going to reach uh, or get close to these targets anyway, there, there, there's going to have to be some decisions made about how we do it. And obviously, the federal government's going to have to step up the table when it comes to supporting and approving technology and, and different approaches here. So what, what are we going to need to see on the table if we want to be able to move forward in a meaningful way? Well, we're in cooperation with both levels of government, with the federal and provincial government. Uh, we're very gratified by the investment tax credit that the federal government proposed in the recent budget, which would help offset about 50% of the capital costs of uh, major CCUS projects. So that was certainly helpful. But we need certainty around, for instance, what will the, what will the carbon price be? What will we be actually able to sell our carbon credits for if we store 10 or 15 megatons a year of carbon. So so we don't have any of that kind of policy certainty right now, and we would have to get regulatory approval for a pipeline, uh, regulatory approval for the, the pore space, basically the area where we sequester the carbon. So all these things have to happen between now and 2030. And what have been the signals so far in terms of whether government is on, on both levels of government on board with the, that and other kinds of projects? Yeah, both levels of government have indicated that they support what Pathways is trying to do in principle, but the devil is in the details. And right now, we just don't have the kind of policy certainty that we would need 
to be able to build uh, these multi-billion-dollar projects. So that, that's why things like this in the emissions cap or the recent changes in the Canadian fuel standard, you know, clean fuel standard rather, uh, are concerning because there are you know fairly big swings in uh, in changes of policy. And we're looking for policy certainty so that we can actually do the, do the investments and decarbonize. Now, we saw the discussion paper this week where the government's looking at a couple of different options. One would be sort of a cap-and-trade system. The other would be to have an industry-specific carbon pricing system. At this point, uh, have you had a chance to look through that? Does one alternative seem worse or, or better than the other? I, we, we're certainly looking at both alternatives. Uh, they have They have pros and cons. I'd say in general... The uh, carbon pricing is probably preferable to an explicit cap under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, but you know, we're looking at the pros and cons of both options. And at this point, I mean, you know, it seems as though we're, we're at the point where there is going to be some industry-specific targets. I and mean, some have wondered whether, you know, it, it undermines the whole idea of, of carbon pricing. Though. Why do we need industry-specific sure. targets, industry-specific regulations? Where do you come down on that? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very valid point. You know, the idea of carbon pricing is you're supposed to have an economy-wide price signal, and you reduce emissions where it's most efficient to do so. But to say that one sector would face a higher price or have a separate system than all the other sectors, like it doesn't make a difference if you're reducing a ton of emissions from cement or from you know automobile transportation or from agriculture. It's a, a ton is a ton is a ton, right. and frankly, the price signals we think should be the same across the board. All right. So sitting here today, where, where do we go from here? What's the next step here? I mean, are, are, are you waiting on, on government to, to get some clarity? Or, or, you know, is the Pathways Alliance still prepared to move forward in certain areas? Where does this all go from here? Well, we're doing both. I mean, we're continuing very actively to advance our projects. We have an application for uh, poor space for the license to explore the sequestration area near Cold Lake that we would need to store carbon. We're working on front-end engineering and design on the, the carbon capture projects. We're working on uh, beginning to prepare for a pipeline application. So all that work is going on. We have over 100 engineers and scientists and you know finance people working on all the aspects of the project currently. But we're obviously going to be very engaged in the policy discussion, and we're going to uh, reply to the government's paper and come up with our own recommendations as to what we think the kind of policy regime we would need to be able to build these projects. Is it realistic that we'll have more clarity, you know, still, you know, later this year within calendar 2022? I would hope so. I mean, I, I think I think we're going to need some policy clarity this year because to meet the timelines we're looking at, we'd have to look at filing a, a pipeline application sometime in 2023. Right. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. In the meantime, much more pathwaysalliance.ca. Mark Cameron, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much. There you go. That's Mark Cameron, Vice President of the Pathways Alliance, pathwaysalliance.ca. So their thoughts on, you know, what's what's realistic, what's reasonable, and I mean, what the government's talking about now isn't isn't either. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.